Good morning. I am glad to be here with you guys this morning. Um, Elson Chad has asked me to preach this morning, and so I'm excited to be with you guys so that we could sing songs of praise to Jesus, and, and now we can open God's Word together. Um, if you would, we're going to continue in uh, the study of Mark, and so if you would, go ahead and turn Mark chapter 2. We're going to cover from verses 13 all the way through 22. Um, so go ahead and open up. I think we'll have it on the screen for you as well. As you kind of turn, I just want to stop and kind of reset and think a little bit about some of the things that Chad has, has kind of pulled out for us over the last few weeks. I think there's been a lot of good stuff, and I just want us to think back on some of the key things. One of the things that I've heard Chad say, I don't know how many times, and other people have, have kind of said this is one of the things I've heard him say a bunch of times in this series, is Jesus is doing Jesus things. We see him do some miraculous things, some that, that display his power grandly, right? We've, we've seen the leper who was healed, which would have been the equivalent of a dead man coming to life for the Jews. We've seen this paralyzed guy last week where they had to dig through the roof, right, and, and lower this guy in so that Jesus could make a lame man walk. Man, we've already seen some other things in this uh, book so far. And, and Chad's done a great job of, 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 of obviously proclaiming that, that Jesus is doing things that display plainly for us God's power and his ability to do grand things. Things that display just almighty power and, and, and just overall sovereignty over all living things. But the other thing that it has been on display for us is God's love for those that are hard to love. God's love on display for those that seem unworthy. God's love on display for those that seem unreachable, that seem far from God. I, I think that is one of the things that as we see Jesus' ministry, we will see continue throughout. There will be great displays of power, but there will be a continued just, just push to, to love those that seem absolutely unlovable. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and jump right in. And here's what I'll promise you. We are going to see Jesus do Jesus things. We're going to see him do some miraculous things. So, so let, let's just jump right in. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 13. We're going to read it all. And then we're going to come back and start to unpack. So verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, 
new wine is put into fresh wineskins. I'd like us to, to, to pray one more time before we carry on. If you would, bow your heads with me. God, we come to you this morning thankful for your word. Lord, I'm thankful for this congregation. I'm thankful for the opportunity to come and worship with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that we get to lift your name high. Lord, I'm thankful for your word and how you choose to reveal truth to us. Lord God, as we, um, as we hear the word proclaimed this morning, Lord, I pray the things that are distracting, I pray that things that don't bring clarity or bring confusion, Lord, that you would allow us to forget and to drop. Lord, I pray those things, that the truth of your word and things that help bring clarity and light to uh, the truth that's displayed in this passage, Lord, that we would cling to and remember. Lord, I pray that we would make much of you this morning. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is a pretty cool passage, um, just in, in structure a little bit. And let, let me explain why. So this same set of stories or, or, or little, little, little things are actually recorded in two other gospels. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 9 and then again in Luke chapter 5 as well. Um, the, the cool part about that is there, it's found in the exact same order and the exact same structure, which tells us a couple of things. Primarily that, number one, um, it was a big event because it would be recorded in all three. Secondly, it tells us that it probably happened in this order and fairly close to one another. Why can we say that? Well, because if they all three recorded it back to back and, and, and with each other, they were probably connected in some kind of way. Because a lot of passages, you may find the same one, but it would, might be intersected by another story that one of the other writers would tell. And so this is a pretty cool passage. So we're going to jump over into the Luke passage a couple of times because there's a couple of little things that I think bring a little bit more clarity to this story as we go through. So I might jump back and forth a little bit between Luke chapter 5 and then Mark chapter 2 this morning just so that we get to see the picture of, of what all God is doing through Jesus here. So let's set the stage. Jesus, in verse 13, right? Jesus went out again beside the sea. Chad's already talked about it a couple of times. At this point, Jesus has already done some Jesus things, and his name is, uh, it's carrying some weight now. People are going, what is this guy doing? And they're wanting to hear, they're wanting to see, they're wanting to be a part of whatever is going to happen next. They're wanting to hear the teaching. They're, they're wanting to see the next miracle. They're maybe even wanting to be the recipient of whatever the next miracle is. And so at this point, Jesus has a lot of people that are following. Jesus goes out by the sea. You can imagine if he's standing with his back to the sea and preaching back up towards um, the, the, the coastline, if you will. That allows, number one, for nobody to get behind him so that as he teaches, people can, can hear. It's also a, a, just a good spot to be able to project and tell people. So there's some practicality of him getting out of way a little bit to be able to, to thin the crowd a little bit, but also be able to actually preach to the people that are coming and listening. So, so we see Jesus trying to get out of way a little bit so that he can actually teach. But verse 14, then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the toll booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. So I want us to, to spend just a minute unpacking tax collectors. So all of us today probably don't really like thinking about the IRS or what tax collectors bring to our lives. But I want us to understand that the tax collectors of the day were probably hated way more than the tax collectors of our day, just realistically. Because just for a little bit of context, tax collectors, specifically Levi and others in this town, probably would have been Jews or, or, or former Jews, if you will, 
based on kind of the way they were viewed by other people. And they would have went and they would have paid some sum of money so that they could get this certificate or, or this role or whatever so that they could collect taxes from their own people. And not only would they just collect taxes, but they would take advantage of. They would steal from. They would, they would exercise greed in some really terrible ways. And so these would have been people that would have been seen as traitors and, and as people who, who had just turned their back on, who had committed a sin uh, and continually like, lived out a lifestyle that was just, man, far from God. And so this Jesus, what does he do? He goes to this guy who is sitting in the tax, in the tax booth and says, Levi, follow me. I want us to turn. I'm going to read the Luke account right here. Just this one verse. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and said to him, follow me. Verse 28 of Luke 5. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. I think that's significant. I think that little bit of added wording there helps us understand what Levi was doing. He wasn't just listening for a few minutes, just listening to this one thing that Jesus had to say. No, he left everything so that he could follow Jesus. I want us to think about Levi's mindset for a second, right? Because at this point, he is a social outcast. He is someone that people literally view as a traitor and as far from God and as somebody who just lives a lifestyle that just is everything against what these Pharisees would have been proclaiming was good and right and, 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 and would draw you closer to God. And so this guy would have been a social outcast. Even his family, there's a good chance his family wouldn't have wanted to talk to him or spend time with him because it would have even been him being a traitor against them. And Jesus goes to this guy and says, follow me. Luke chapter five. Again, the next verse here. Sorry, there we go. Verse 29, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Levi's response here is interesting. He throws a grand banquet because of what Christ had done for him. This isn't just a quiet meal together. Levi recognizes what Jesus has done for him and how big of a deal is that Jesus, this teacher, this prophet, this healer, would look to him and say, follow me. Because to this point, if you think about it, Pharisees would have, have almost made it a badge of honor to just avoid the tax collector and sinner and have nothing to do with them. That would have been one of the things that helps them stand out is I'm not going to associate with those people. And Jesus goes to him and says, you follow me. You're in my camp now. And so Levi, Levi is, Jesus is doing new things. And Levi is probably just doesn't even know what to do with himself. So the only thing he knows to do at this point is I need to throw a grand banquet because I need everybody that I know to hear what Jesus has done for me. I want, I want Jesus to come tell all of these other people what, what he's telling me. I want them to get to see the hope that Jesus has brought to me. Man, he throws a grand banquet so everybody that he knows can see. And the Pharisees respond to Jesus' disciples and in earshot of Jesus and say, 
Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Again, that would have, their, one of their badges of honor would have been the fact that they avoided those people. They, they, that, that would have been a good thing that they could not even associate with these tax collectors. Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees, the Pharisees more than likely would have been confused by this statement. They would have been caught off guard. They, they can't understand that because, because just realistically, right, like what is, what is their right standing before God based on? It's based on them following this set of rules and, and, and just striving to be righteous. And so now Jesus, this prophet, this teacher, this healer, this somebody who's claimed some things already that, that I, I, there's something, something going on here and I don't like it, now says, I came for those sinners. I didn't, I didn't come to call the righteous. And so in their head, they're probably wrestling through, am I the, am I the righteous? Like, I guess I don't need Jesus, so uh, am I the righteous? What, what, I, uh, I don't know what to do with it. It would have confused them. It would have frustrated them because, again, part of what they believed was, was good and right was them to literally avoid these people, to not associate with these sinners, with these tax collectors. They're confused. They're frustrated. They're looking for things now to discredit Jesus. Verse, nine, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? So again, in that same line of thinking, the, the, the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus. So what do they do now? They point out something that would have been a tradition and would have been written in as something that's wholly righteous to go do, which would have been fast. There were some requirements in the law for, for, for Jews to fast, but it would have been uh, fairly infrequent. But there had been this like tradition and this thing come up where now all of a sudden the, the holier, the, the more righteous of the Pharisees would have been fasting like multiple times a week, probably for 12 hours a day. And in fact, we see it referenced later, right? Because what do we see um, Jesus actually tell us later? It says, when you fast, what do you do? Don't, don't mope around. Don't make yourself look sick and weary. No. Get yourself cleaned up. Walk around as if things are normal. Don't try to make it about the fact that you're fasting. Don't try to make yourself look more righteous just because you're running around fasting. The reason he has to say that is because these Pharisees are walking around fasting multiple times a week trying to say, oh, woe is me. Look at me. Do you see me fasting? Fasting is supposed to be a time of, 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 of grieving and of mourning and of our sins so that we would depend on God. And yet somehow or another, the Pharisees have made it about a pride, arrogance thing that they can accomplish and do. So the Pharisees now call out Jesus and say, why aren't your disciples fasting? I mean, we're, we're fasting. We're doing it regularly because, you know, that's a righteous, good thing that sets us apart. Jesus' response, verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying it is not the time to fast. This is a time of celebration. Do you see what is being done? We have lepers who are being healed 
dead men who are being raised. We have paralyzed men who are being, sins being forgiven and being made well where they can walk. We have tax collectors who are believing in God and, and repenting and changing, throwing a grand banquet for the Messiah who has come. This is not the time for fasting. This is the time for celebration. You see, in the rabbinic law, there actually was, there was actually a, 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 a clause, if you will, written in that the wedding party was not to fast during the wedding week. Why? Because the wedding week was supposed to be a time of celebration. Right? The, the wedding week would have been one of the most joyous weeks of that man, of the groom and the, and the bride's life. It is supposed to be a week of celebration. And so you were not to fast during the wedding week if you were a part of the wedding party. You were supposed to celebrate the new thing that was going to be. And so Jesus here is saying, it is not time for fasting. It is time for celebration. There'll be a time for fasting, but it's not now. Just to be, just to be transparent, right? When we read this, there's probably some of us that have spent some time in the Word that, that maybe think even to the, the imagery that we'll see later about the bride and the groom and how Christ is the, the groom and the church will be his bride. And we have that imagery. Realistically, the Pharisees probably didn't have that imagery of any sort because Old Testament-wise, there, there's not that imagery painted for us yet. That actually comes in the New Testament. But man, it's pretty cool to think about here. The Pharisees didn't get it, but Jesus was making a statement about that as well, realistically. He was trying to communicate to these Pharisees it wasn't time to fast, but... But, man, if you think about what is this for Jesus? What is this time for Jesus and his disciples? It's wedding week. Jesus is ushering in the new covenant. He is is at the start of his ministry where he is going to do all of these things and and fulfill all of these prophecies. And he he, he is going to come. He's going to live this life. He is going to be crucified. And then be raised and usher in this wedding of Christ as groom and his church as bride. It is not time for fasting. The groom, Jesus, is here. This is wedding week. So Jesus tells these Pharisees, this isn't the time, this is a time for celebration. It's not the time for fasting. In Luke, um, before verse 21, it actually says, and Jesus told this parable. And so uh, starting in verse 21, we're going to read the rest of this and kind of wrestle through. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No. New wine is put into fresh wineskins. You guys can imagine, right, if, if we have a, a patch that I need to put on my jeans or on my shirt because I've got a hole, and I just take a brand new patch and I sew it on, this shirt is from, I don't know, college, maybe even high school, right? So it's been washed a time or two. I didn't wash it very many times in college, but who does, right? But it's been washed a lot since, right? If I try to sew a patch onto this shirt of brand new cloth, and I'm going to sew it tight. I'm going to make it look good where you can't even tell. And then I go take it and I wear it. And then my wife being lovely and just taking care of me washes it for me. 
and I wear it one more time, then I wash it again, what's going to happen? That patch is going to shrink. It's going to pull away, and now I'm going to have a bigger hole in my shirt, right? The wine example. We've got some technical people in here. We've got some operators. We've got some engineers, right? So what happens when you make wine? Well, there's some chemical reactions going on. Right? And so if you take new wine and pour it into an old wineskin, that new wine, as those chemical reactions take place, there's some gassing off that happens. Right? So the deal is, if I put that into an old wineskin and I tie it up, that old wineskin is already stretched. It's already um, worn in, if you will. And as I tie that tight and I leave that new wine in there, it begins to expand because you got gases gassing off and you will literally burst the skin. So what do you do? You put new wine into a new wine skin because the new wine skin has got some room to stretch. It can handle the, 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 the gassing off that's going to take place. Jesus is telling them, I am bringing something new. And it can't fit into your old systems. It can't fit into your old traditions. Jesus is bringing something new. I want us to go back to verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. When we read that verse, uh, again, the Pharisees probably would have heard it and been confused and and, kind of like, well, who is he talking about? What? I don't understand. Like, we're supposed to avoid those people. We're supposed to not associate with them because, man, they've already made their decision. They chose to, to, to abandon us. They chose to basically take the side of the government and, 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 and they chose to, to literally sell out, become a traitor and take advantage of us and continually do it as a lifestyle. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. One thing I want us to recognize here though, Jesus' statement to them was not an indication that the Pharisees were righteous. Jesus' statement when he says, I have come, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why did he not come to call the righteous? I don't understand. Jesus came for all people. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous because there were no righteous to call. The Pharisees who thought they had it all together and thought that they were working their way towards this righteousness were coming with filthy rags. Realistically, even that statement by Jesus was a call even for the Pharisees. They were sinners just like the tax collector that they were upset that Jesus was associating with. When we stop and we look at at, at what this Christian faith is about and what Jesus tells us here and what Jesus continues to proclaim time and time again, sometimes in parables, sometimes in flat-out words, sometimes just in action, I I want us to understand that if, if, if all that we are about or what we believe is the crux of our Christian faith is that we would slightly alter or slightly like change our behavior a little bit, or, or, or that we would, we would execute this and be here this Sunday and be here next Sunday and that's two in a row, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. If it is about simply changing my attitude just slightly so that, so that it'll be a little bit better and that people will, will like me a little bit more, 
or Chad will think a little better of me. Jared will like me a little bit more. He'll, he'll ask me to help a little bit more. If that's what it's about, then, then we've missed the crux of the gospel. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous because there were no righteous to call. We are hopeless if that is what our gospel is about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. We are in need of Jesus to give us a new heart. We are in need of Jesus to, to come in and make us new. It is not enough to slightly, slightly change our direction just a little bit. No, no, no. It, it's a repentance, a, a giving up of the old self and, and putting on the new. Christ is coming and doing new things. He's demonstrating for these Pharisees and for everybody that can hear that, look, all of these works that you're bringing to the table, that they're not going to do it. What do we see with Levi? Jesus made Levi new. Levi had a pattern, a lifestyle that was that of taking advantage of other people. And Jesus said, this is for you. I want us to stop for a minute and just think back to the last couple of weeks, realistically, though. Jesus went, and who did he call? Or who did he go to and put himself uh, in the realm of the leper? The dead man. He would have, Chad, Chad talked about this. That would have been the equivalent of a dead man to the Jews. Outcast in every way. Not allowed to even be around. Then who? The paralytic the one who was being punished for whatever sin him or his, his parents committed. He, man, he, he's bad enough that God literally chose to punish him by making him paralyzed. And now the social outcast, the one who's, who is so far from God and has already made the decisions that are too bad, he, no. He's a no-go too. Jesus has chosen to, because God wants to demonstrate his love for those that are far from God. God wants to demonstrate that this is not about working your way to anything. No, you are in need of a savior. Jesus is doing Jesus things. He talks to them about this wedding feast. Jesus is ushering in the new covenant where Jesus would come. He would live this perfect, righteous life. He would be beaten, mocked, ridiculed. He, he, he would be taken advantage of in every way. Then he would be hung on a cross and crucified, put in the tomb, but then he would be raised. He would overcome sin and death, not so that we could slightly alter our behavior just a little bit. He did that so that we could be given new hearts. If you are somebody in the room who has been going about this Christian life, simply being here to, 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 try to, to try to be a little bit better, to, to, to simply try to, you know, make yourself feel a little bit better because I made it to church this week or, or, or I'm going to I'm gonna try to lie a little bit less or I'm going to try these things. Look, that is not the gospel. 
Don't get me wrong. I believe that, that when you are saved and when you are made new, that you're going to work at those things and God is going to do the sanctification process. But if there has not been a time in your life when you have surrendered and said, no, 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 I'm not trusting in what I'm bringing to the table for my hope and my salvation. I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus. Then you are not trusting in the gospel. And so for those of you in the room that maybe you have been coming to church on a semi-regular basis or maybe even a lot for a long time, but you've never trusted in Jesus for that, man, I pray that God would, God would move in your heart this morning. You would understand that. You would see that the hope that we have is in Jesus. Maybe you're a, 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 a believer in the room. Maybe you, you, you say, I, I have. I've trusted in Jesus for that. Then, then what I want us to sit here and think about for just a minute, I want us to think about who Jesus went to. Now, I don't want you to place yourself in the, in the, in the shoes of Jesus here because that's a bad idea. You're asking for trouble when you try to do that in this story. But what I do want us to do is I do want us to emulate Christ. I do want us to want to be like Jesus. I do want us to pursue those people that Jesus pursued. I do want us to care for the sick I do want us to care for the outcast. I do want us to take care of the orphan and the widow. Why? Because, because when we look and we understand the amount of grace and mercy that was poured out for us, even though we were far from God, even though realistically we were just as bad as the leper, we were dead men. We were just as bad as the paralyzed man. We were just as bad as the social outcast, the tax collector, the rebel, the enemy of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us. God gave us a new heart through Christ. And so with that, we, we are so overwhelmed by that truth that, that God would just pour out grace and mercy on us that we have to throw the grand banquet because we don't know what else to do. Like we're at this point where, where, we're, where we are in unbelief of how much grace and mercy God has shown. And so we respond with what? We love those who are unlovable and we want to tell everybody that we can about how good God has been to us. So if you're a believer in the room, I ask the question, how are you treating the social outcast? How are you treating the, the leper? How are you treating the paralyzed man? And, and that can be a literal sick person or that can be figuratively, the one that's difficult to love, the one that seems unlovable, the one that frustrates you. How are you treating those people? Here's the deal. I'm going to be in the back, my right, your left, hand corner of the room. If you've never trusted in Jesus to be Lord and Savior and to truly give you a new heart, I pray that you would respond in repentance and belief in him this morning. For the believer in the room, I pray, I pray, I pray that God would soften our hearts to those that, are, that seem far from God, that seem unlovable. I pray that we would we believe that Jesus can do Jesus things and can save those people. Let's pray. God, you're good. God, I'm thankful for your word and the hope that it brings. I'm thankful that 
Lord, even when I was far from God and an enemy of God, Lord, you, you gave me hope. You made me new. But I pray for the people in the room this morning. I pray that you would continue to show your goodness to them. I pray that you would just show us how desperate we are and how much we are in need of Jesus to continue to make us new. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ and make much of Jesus. Lord, thank you uh, first and foremost for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.